Welcome to PathPod. Today we're gathered around the scope to discuss renal pathology. My fabulous renal pathologist guests will talk about what brought them to the subspecialty, what makes it so great, and what's new for renal pathology. Hello and welcome to PathPod. Today we're doing our segment around the scope and today's feature topic is renal pathology. We're really fortunate today to be joined by a number of leaders and experts in this area. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah J. And let's just go around and have everyone introduce themselves. Hi, so I'm Aileen Bissonette. I currently am in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I'm originally from Michigan, and I did my MD-PhD at Northwestern University, and then my residency in renal pathology fellowship at the University of Chicago. Hi, my name is Carla Ellis. I'm here at Northwestern University in Chicago. I went to medical school at the University of Nevada and did my general pathology and both renal and GU fellowships at Johns Hopkins. And then I took a faculty position at Emory for six years and then eventually navigated here to Chicago. So I'm here now. Hi, Sarah. So my name is Alcino. I am Brazilian and I went to med school and also to my clinical training in internal medicine and nephrology there. And three years ago, I moved to Canada and I did a research fellowship in immunology of kidney transplantation. And now I'm in Chicago, also at Northwestern University. I'm a PGY2 in pathology and Dr. Ellis is my mentor. Hi, everyone. My name is Vignesh Vallavalkar, originally from Los Angeles, California. I went to medical school in India, in KMC Mangalore, which is in southern India. I did my residency at UC Irvine, again in California, then moved to the East Coast to do my surge path and cytology fellowship, and then over to San Francisco, California at UCSF to do my renal path fellowship. I'm currently a renal pathologist and director of histology at UCSF. Awesome. Welcome, everyone. My first question for the group, and this can be for anyone who wants to answer, is what got you into pathology? I can start. I became interested in pathology after college. I had my psychology degree that I wasn't really sure where I was going to take that. And a friend mentioned that there's this, you know, master's program in pathology and you get to do autopsies and you get to grow specimens. And it was the PA program at the University of Maryland. And so that's kind of when I became interested. I applied for that program, got in, became a PA, and then the rest is history. I've always been sort of a pathologist at heart. Awesome. I didn't realize that you you had that background of being a PA and that's how you got into the field. That's great. Yep. So really the anatomy was what drew you in, right? Yeah, so we could say that, yeah, anatomy. I can talk a little bit about my pathway, which is a little bit unusual, because I think I did everything like backwards <laughs> when I look back. So when I was in med school, I think my favorite day during my whole med school was the pathology lecture for lupus nephritis. I was like absolutely fascinated by that. But I think that because of a lack of exposure and also maybe lack of like role models when I was in med school. I didn't see pathology as a career to myself. So I ended up doing internal medicine and nephrology because I think that was the way that I would be closest to to what I liked the most in, in medicine. But then during my nephrology training, I started having real role models and seeing pathology as a career when I was put in charge of the kidney biopsies, the native kidney biopsies. So that happened later on in my career. And that's how I got interested into pathology through nephrology, through renal pathology. So it's a bit unusual. I think 
there's a lot of connection between the nephrologists and renal pathologists. I feel like there's so much, I mean, obviously in all of our fields, we have a lot of interaction with our colleagues in oncology and surgery, but I definitely feel like the nephrologists are very into renal pathology findings. I know that the nephrologists here really spend a lot of time with our renal pathologists, and I see a lot of nods. So I suspect that is true for all of you in your practice as well. It is interesting because it started almost, I was almost kidding when I started my transition, my career transition, because things got really serious. Like I start, I was put in charge of the biopsies. Then I was discussing the biopsies with the pathologist. And then the pathologist sent me to the Columbia medical course for the renal biopsies and things escalated. And I think that the nephrologists, they have like a really deep relation with pathology. They do like pathology, but I don't think all of them would be as interested as I am, like in actually pursuing redirection in the career. But uh, as an nephrologist, I can say that we are very histology based. I just want to say Alcino has been a huge benefit to us to having that perspective. Like I think, not trying to pressure, but if he does decide to go on and become a renal pathologist, which I think he's pretty much there, he will probably be the only renal pathologist in the world, you know, that has been in both places, been a nephrologist and now has a pathology background and is able to look at renal pathology from the really from the more, you know, invasive part as a nephrologist and then also as a pathologist as well. So I think it's going to be great for him to have that perspective. And no pressure, right? Right. I think that the fact that I'm here today, it's it really establishes right. my answer to the question. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So for me, in my past life, I was a biophysicist that was very interested in the interplay of structure and function. And I got involved in the medical scientist training program because I wanted to get into drug discovery. And my focus was going to be research with just having the tie to medicine. But then once I was in medical school, and at the time, Northwestern, the first year was very heavy on pathology and underlying pathophysiology. And it just really struck me that it was kind of the basis for disease. And my interest kind of went that way. And so I got redirected into more the clinical side, but then in pathology. Neat. And I mean, looking at the structure of glomeruli and the EFs, that really makes sense, that, that story. Absolutely. <laughs> My interest, how I developed interest in pathology, you know, when I came back to the U.S. from India after med school, I was thinking about pathology, but I wasn't sure about it yet. And then I ended up, as many, you know, foreign medical grads do, we try to look for a little bit of, a, a, you know, experience here in the U.S., to kind of help us decide. I ended up doing, I think it was three month rotation in both AP and CP at the University of Houston, in Houston, University of Texas. And the department there was just amazing. I still think to this day that that was the reason why it kind of like consolidated my interest in both AP and CP. And I spent a good three months there just rotating through as an observer through cytology. I remember heme path, chemistry, blood bank, all sorts of different parts of pathology. And at that point, I had a good amount of exposure during med school, but I didn't know exactly what a pathologist does. I knew about pathology in general, but that is what actually gave me that awareness as like what the day-to-day -day would be for a pathologist. And that was just very eye-opening. And I knew after those three months that that's what I wanted to do. And I applied and I ended up getting into pathology. So that was my entry into pathology. 
Cool. I mean, that really speaks to why pathology experiences for students and people who are learners are so important. A lot of the stories that I'm hearing from all of you, and certainly in my experience as well, is medical school curricula, if you just go through them, don't necessarily have a lot of exposure to pathology. That's something I know a lot of us are working on, but it's those experiences interacting with pathologists and seeing the work they do, I think, that really draw us to the field because it's awesome work. I mean, I feel like if more people knew about it and how awesome it is, the workflow, the academic interest of the work, they would really not be any problems in the pathology pipeline, right? Because, I mean, of course, I'm preaching to the choir here, but... Sarah, I feel like this is a very appropriate place to just quickly share my screen since we're talking about this and just go ahead and let you guys, I know that the listeners aren't going to be able to see it, but I do want to talk about it from the perspective and show you guys the study that Maylin and I were involved in. This is what presented at ASCP in 2018. I still need to publish it. It's just trying to find the right journal for this. But basically, we did a study called Promoting Interest in Challenging Myths Regarding Training and Careers in Medical Renal Pathology, a pathology training survey analyzed. And we took 44 pathology residents from, I think, about five or six different institutions. Every author forced the residents at their program to go ahead and take this survey. In- encouraged, encouraged. Encur- I'm sorry, encouraged, encouraged, yes. Encouraged gave, them, them. gave them the opportunity <laughs> yes. to take the survey. Right. Promised them, you know, a gift card. <laughs> And what it was, was a 10-question survey just to kind of get some more information about pathology trainees and their knowledge of and exposure to renal pathology. So if you look over here at results, I'll just drag the eye over here, these five bullet points here. What everybody has already said, Alcino, yourself, lack of early exposure was what we considered a modifiable reason for a lack of interest in renal pathology. Belief of lack of specimen diversity, right, also modifiable because you're talking about transplant and infection and native disease and GN, which is a wide variety of different types of biopsy specimens. So we can fix that belief of limitation to academia. So a lot of the, the people who were surveyed thought that if they took a job in renal pathology, they would only be able to work in an academic institution, which for the most part is fairly true. There are a few sort of private practice style renal biopsy outfits that will have specimens shipped in and then put the the results out to a lot of neighboring clinical nephrology groups. Limited job market, that's what we considered a non-modifiable reason. We can't, there's not much that we can do about the job market. It is what it is, but there are as we speak, I think over 10 or 12 places that are hiring right now are renal pathologists. So those of people that are in training right now kind of have their choice of where they want to be. And then lastly, lack of interest or stronger interest in other subspecialties. Again, non-modifiable. We can't, we're not going to force anyone to, you know, be a renal pathologist if people are interested in other things. You know, it is what it is. But those were what, you know, in our sort of small end of responders were the most common reasons for why pathology residents don't consider a career in renal pathology. So everybody's sort of hit the nail on the head with the lack of early exposure piece, which we can do something about and we're trying. And hopefully this podcast can be a part of that early exposure piece because next, of course, I'm going to ask all of you, how did you find renal pathology and what is your favorite thing about doing renal pathology? Getting to Carla's point, so at University of Chicago, renal pathology is a required rotation. So every resident has to do four weeks or a month worth. And so I did my rotation early on in my PGY2 year. And, you know, 
I never would have gone into renal pathology if it hadn't been for that elective. I, I had never really considered it. And, you know, it really took that time to really get my mind around it. When I, when I first started, I was like, I don't get it. This is awful. I never <laughs> want to do this. I don't do this as a career. But then, you know, suddenly around week three, like everything just clicked. And I'm like, this is amazing. And I decided to do it for a career. And it's actually all that I do. I don't sign out anything except for renal pathology. And it really was that interplay of seeing like on a daily basis, like how we interact with nephrology, how important those discussions are. And it's very different from working with surgeons. And, you know, some people like it, some people prefer the others. But, you know, for me, it really, it really all clicked. And looking at the light, the immunofluorescence, the electron microscopy, that you can have different differentials based on different morphologies and kind of putting it all together in the context of the clinical. So really to come to a diagnosis, for me, it was like, you know, solving a puzzle and solving a mystery. And I just absolutely love EM on top of it. <laughs> yeah, at Duke as well, renal pathology is a required rotation. And I definitely felt like going in there, I was like, what is happening? What is immunofluorescence? <laughs> What's happening in EM? And I, I won't say that I ended my rotation by wanting to be a renal pathologist, but I will say that I kind of understood that satisfaction of taking all those different pieces of the puzzle, the clinical, the EM, the IF, the H&E, whatever stains might be ordered and putting it all together to tell the story of the patient. Because I think that's, that's really what we do with our biopsies, right? As we tell the story of what's happening at a microscopic level. Yeah, I would, I think, I feel like a lot of people walk away from their required renal path rotation with that same impression, Sarah, unless you kind of already are aware about renal path or know something about it, you're like, okay, what are all these different tests? I don't get it. And that's what I'm trying to facilitate here is sort of a hybrid virtual rotation where you have time to yourself to listen to pre-recorded lectures about, you know, nephrotic syndrome, nephritic syndrome, transplant, intro to renal pathology and have like a pre-test and a post-test and maybe almost like a week of just independent study. And then the second week is where you actually take cases with me. And by that time, you've already kind of had a scan the case to look at where you can count your glomeruli and evaluate your immunofluorescence on your own. So that way, when it's time for you to do it on a real specimen, you're not bleaching the you know, <laughs> immunofluorescence out of the specimen because you're aware of how, how careful that is. But I guess for me, I would say my exposure to renal pathology came as a PA when I would see like there's these special kidney biopsies that aren't like the other biopsies. And you have everybody got all nervous about spree agents and glutaraldehyde and take a piece and freeze it. And I just didn't understand what was, you know, this was so interesting to me why this was such a special kind of biopsy. And then it took for me to go on to medical school and learn about renal pathology, which I loved in medical school, and then get to pathology residency and understand that like non-neoplastic GU and kidney tissue is a different fellowship than medical renal. Like, it's not like that for like non-neoplastic neuro, you know, and, you know, neuro or GI. It's not like all IBD and tumors. So I was under the impression that it was just one fellowship. You learned everything. And I think a lot of places have that now, like six months of renal, six months of GU. But there were, those weren't in existence when I was making this decision. So I did one year of each and uh, the rest is history. Mm -hmm. 
Do you feel like having the background of doing medical renal and then also doing GU, does the one inform the other? I feel like it does more so in GU. In GU on nephrectomies, you, you're looking at the background kidney and you're able to, you know, kind of not just ignore it or be intimidated by what's going on there, but you can actually say, okay, there's nothing here, or maybe there's a little early diabetic nephropathy or the, you know, the vessels look a little like there's a little bit of chronic vascular disease. So I think it helps more in GU to have renal than it does in renal to have the GU background, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. Yeah. Vignesh, do you do it? So you do cytopath and then renal pathology. Do you do another specialty as well? No, I do renal and cyto. My sort of interest in renal pathology was developed out of just kind of these quirks that you have in residency and training. So when I was a resident at UC Irvine, we would have this morning conference, this unknown conference where the attendings would put out cases the night before. And the next morning, we would all be at a big multi-headed scope and all the attendings would ask us. And when I was chief resident, occasionally one of our attendings would put out renal cases and all the residents would look to me like, what is this? You have to help me with this because you know, they're going to ask tomorrow. And so just to kind of help them out and make sure that I wasn't, I don't want to say embarrassed the next morning, but you know, put on the spot, I could answer. I would actually like start looking up the cases and like studying them. That kind of like need to be able to answer the questions in morning conference got me interested in renal because I would look at the cases and just get so like into them and they were so interesting. So that was my intro into it. And then when I went to UMass, another thing that like, you know, Alcino is talking about is I had a really good mentor, you know, Vijay Vanguri, who's the renal pathologist at, at UMass. I think he was trained by Helmut Renke. So he taught me sort of like Dr. Renke style. He really got me like passionate about it. So it was that interest that I had that developed during residency because of just being exposed to those cases and having to know about it, then pushed on by having a very, very good mentor. And I was actually a surge path fellow. I wasn't a renal fellow at yet UMass. So I was doing my surge path fellowship and, you know, frozens and GI and all of everything together and then doing renal on the side. And that's when I realized like, oh yeah, this is what I really like. This is what I'm passionate about. So I think like early exposure in residency is important, but also having those people, those mentors really make you like love the subject, you know? And then finally, when I came to UCSF, my, my renal mentor, Dr. Lasik, he's the one who really taught me like the intricacies, especially transplant pathology, because we do a lot of transplant pathology at, at UCSF, just sitting with him at the scope and like counting tubules and like lymphocytes. And is that on the inside of the basement membrane? And is it tubulitis or not? Just these tiny things that we spent so many hours together that really pushed me. So when I started residency, I had no idea about renal pathology. And we had like a two week rotation that was not mandatory because we weren't a big renal uh, center. We didn't have a lot of biopsies, but it was just a little bit of luck, a little bit of good fortune, and then good mentors. So I echo everyone's points that early exposure to, to pathology residents in an organized way would be very helpful. I agree that the matter of lack of exposure to renal pathology, of early exposure to mm -hmm. renal pathology is truly an issue. As a PGI2 now, I decided to do an, an elective in renal pathology and I'll do like in September. And it's funny because people from my institution and from other institutions, they I've heard like dozens of times, oh, of course you want to do an elective in, in, in renal pathology because you are a nephrologist. And I say, yes, but that should not be the only reason. Like it's 
renopathology is, is a field of pathology and it should be acknowledged and it should be, a, people should have early exposure, at least have the option as we do have here, we have an option to have an early exposure because I will apply for fellowship in 10 months. So if I don't have that exposure, by the time I would eventually have set my mind to do another fellowship. And that's how we end up losing potentially interested, people potentially interested in renopathology. Yeah, that's just to piggyback off that, that is a extremely early time to have to figure out what you want to do with the rest of your career. And this is something that's not specific to renal pathology, but it did come across the, the dais of the board of directors meeting for the renal pathology society. And it was a presentation from one of our members about what are our thoughts about being involved in the fellowship match as far as a specialty. And there were different opinions and I think the bottom line is that everybody has to be in or out, you know, like you, but my, but I guess my point is that you have to decide what you want to do for any subspecialty so early in your residency training. I'm very grateful that I already knew before I even started residency. Sounds like Alcino sort of in the same boat, but for people who are undecided, I think that it's, we're missing people that could potentially be interested in it, but just they, it's, it's too late by the time they have exposure to it. So. I think that was my experience as well, because I, I decided really late. I knew I liked it, but I didn't know I wanted to do a fellowship until you know I was actually already a fellow. So I think I decided in my search path fellowship year, which is you know five years in. At that point, there were there were still pretty good fellowships available. So I think that's one good thing about renal pathology for people who are listening. If you feel like you're later on in your residency or training and you feel like you're interested in it, I think it's still possible to get good res fellowship spots, even though it's later on. I think some of them like, you know, heme pads, cytology, and the other more competitive ones, I think it's really hard when you're later. It's not impossible. I think it's still possible. But with renal, I would say that's one thing that we're a little bit lucky that, you know, we can still get good applicants later on. And, I, I should, and nobody should be discour discouraged if, if, if you're thinking about renal pathology and you're like a PGY4 or even a surge path fellow, you know, just start asking around, you know, write to people and, and, and there are good fellowship spots that are open even later on. So... And it's a great tool to have, even yeah. if you don't practice it. You know, if you do a fellowship in it, you probably will practice it in some capacity. But I think it's just a really good thing to know because you may be the only person that has had any training beyond the two-week elective in residency at your entire, you know, private practice group, for example. And so there are instances where you may need to know some of that morphology for your job. So I totally agree. It's never too late. That's really helpful. And it's it's interesting to hear that the renal fellowships are thinking about the standardized timeline too, because I know in cytopathology, in surge path, we've moved towards that. And I think it's really great for our applicants to get some uniformity because it otherwise is a little bit like the Wild West. And I think it creates a lot more work for everybody. So it's exciting. Kind of talking about new and exciting things. I'm curious to hear from all of your perspectives, you know, what's new and exciting in renal pathology? What's coming down the pipeline? I was trying to get that. Yeah, <laughs> Twitter, Twitter is a buzz with all the new stuff, yeah. right? So it's, I think renal pathology traditionally has been one of the sub fields in pathology that has been very hardcore. They're all morphology based, you know, everything in pathology is morphology based. We're all morphologists, but renal pathology has always been pure morphology, unlike cancer, which, you know, we have a lot of molecular and, you know, things like that. But I think now the, the big thing in 
renal, at least in the last five to 10 years, has been this discovery of new antigens and mass spectrometry and molecular and stuff like that. So I think that's a huge revolution that's happening. It's basically like if you think about renal path, one big revolution probably happened in the 60s or 70s when immunofluorescence was invented. That changed glomerulonephritis forever. We're able to characterize IgA, nephropathy, lupus, that kind of stuff. EM always has been something that has been a mainstay of pathology. I don't think there have been major advances in EM apart from new things that have been discovered, but from a technological standpoint, it's been somewhat stable. And now we're entering this sort of like proteomic molecular phase of renal pathology, which is you know, for like an old person like me is like, oh man, I got to learn this new stuff now. You know? <laughs> Ignesh, I don't think you qualify as old by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. <laughs> old fashioned, maybe old, old school. Fashion. I should say. Yeah, maybe old, old in spirit, maybe. Yeah, old, old school. Yeah. So I would say what's new in real pathology is we're getting into this molecular mass spectrometry, proteomic type of stuff to characterize genetics also to, to characterize renal disease. Absolutely. And along with that, it's also taking all of these new omics and analyzing it in the context of morphology, both from the pathology driven, and also that from machine learning and AI, that there is just a lot of, from what I'm seeing now, and especially down the pike, there's a lot of getting the analysis between clinical and outcome and omics and morphology, but also AI. So it's, it's an exciting time. Yeah, definitely. The most exciting thing for me is the AI and the scanning technology and the ability to have a more convenient way to evaluate renal pathology other than the glass slide. So for example, we have a renal pathology slide club that Anthony Chang at University of Chicago runs. And it's just a very nice and interesting case share. And some people are just, you know, they have their scanned images going across the screen. And the other day, Tony was like, are all your cases scanned? And he's in the Jonathan Zuckerman was like, yeah, Pretty much, but just makes it easier if you want to go back to a transplant that was done a few months ago, or if people come by and want to see the case, it just makes it easier than having to go pull the slides. So that to me is something where I hope that we can kind of get there. But then the question is, if the diagnosis is crucial and based on immunofluorescence, how are we scanning immunofluorescence, right? EM is easy. It's digitized. It's just the last time I had to come here on the weekend was a patient that was in renal failure ended up having a new donor-specific antibodies and a diffusely positive C4D stain. So that's what I needed, the immunofluorescence to make the diagnosis. And it wasn't a situation where I could kind of have the resident on call go in and look because there's no scanning capability and technology for immunofluorescence. But hopefully, you know, for, for everything else there is, and hopefully in the future we'll be able to do that too. But so that's the, what I kind of like about renal pathology is there's some things that are just old fashioned and, you know, electron microscopy is old school yeah. and I, I like it. I think it's fun, you know. Uh, I had never really thought about that. You know, here, my colleagues in renal pathology here at Duke have been very active with using scanner technology. And I, yeah. I keep asking them, when are you going to get me my glom counter? Because I cover transplant frozen sections. And of course, you're sitting there in the middle of the night, you're counting your gloms, you're looking at the tubules, you're evaluating all those different things. And I'm like, oh, if I could just, you know, we have a slide scanner, but if I just stick it in the scanner, it can spit out my glom yeah. count. I mean, yeah. it would it would save me, uh, save, let's be real, five minutes. But, you know, in the middle right. of the night, five minutes is a big deal. So I've been yelling at them, you know, we need this for prime time. I want it now. And they go, yeah. 
you know, yeah. telling me they're doing other research or something. <laughs> but yeah, I hadn't thought about the fact that, you know, immunofluorescence does not lend itself to scanning. And it's something like you say, old school, you sit in a dark room and you sit behind a microscope and you look for the full house, right? Yep. And you have your your AirPods in and you just, you know, look for full house or DSA, or sorry, C4D or IgA, anything that kind of clinches a diagnosis based on immunofluorescence. That's my one renal pathology immunofluorescence diagnosis, by the way. I'll just keep, you know, it's like the broken clock, (laughs) right? Twice a day. Right, right. Yelling (laughs) that, like eventually it will be lupus, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think light microscopy, the way we process kidney biopsies, they're smaller specimens. We cut them at thin, they're cut usually at two microns or whatever, as opposed to surge path, which is four or five. I think it kind of was the perfect part of pathology to digitize because you have small specimens, they're thin, you have different stains. And so light microscopy was always easy to digitize. EM was all, has been digital for a while now, so it's mostly digital, right? I know there are groups out there that are experimenting with immunofluorescence scanning. It's a little bit more complicated. I know the Renal Pathology Society has their lectures and they're going to talk about this scanning of immuno later on this year. So it's getting there. You know, I think in a few years time, we will be able to digitize immunofluorescence, but right now it's challenging. So our service is completely digital, the light microscopy. So we can, unlike cytology and doing FNAs, <laughs> I can actually do kidney pathology from home. So that's another advantage to the listeners if you're interested in renal path it, it is something that is heavily digitized in many places and potentially i think a lot of pathology even a lot of search path will be being done digitally in the future so renal path will be leading the way in that i think not cytology so far <laughs> <laughs> well it will be difficult to figure out how to do my ultrasound fnas remotely you know i think i think that's, that's going to be you know, a little bit challenging to i mean they do robotic prostatectomies you know from, from remote <laughs> I know. We'll just be able to do we'll just have a robotic clone of me walk yeah. into the exam room and try to get the patient comfortable. I don't know, maybe a robot would be more comforting than me in person, but we'll see. We'll see. So you mentioned a little bit about the Renal Path Society. I was looking at the Renal Path Society website and I was really excited to see the statement that in 2022, that the Renal Path Society was looking at embracing diversity, equity, inclusion. And there's some wonderful interviews for the past several months of renal pathologists and learning their stories and learning a bit more about what their interests were. Can you speak a little bit about those efforts in the Renal Pathology Society? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I finished my three-year tenure as the treasurer for the Renal Pathology Society. And so just as a side, a side comment, that the other great thing about this is that like most pathology subspecialties, you have your group, like you have your cytology society and neuropath and liver and all that. So renal pathology, a great, very close-knit, group of like-minded people who all love kidney biopsies. But I was finishing up as as treasurer, so I talked about it with Ingeborg Bayima, who was our president, and she thought that it might be a good idea to bring in EI into the Renal Pathology Society. I haven't checked the roster, but I want to say I'm the only female person of color in the Renal Pathology Society. If I'm wrong, let me know. I don't know of anyone else that is a member. There could be other renal pathologists out there, I'm sure. So I felt like it's very isolating a lot of times. And I thought that, you know, DEI efforts were coming up and being more at the forefront and being very important in so many other ways. I thought, why not bring this into the Renal Pathology Society? So I had developed a calendar of celebrations that I, the same ones I do here at Northwestern. 
So September is Women in Medicine Month. Bridging September and October, it's Hispanic Heritage Month. We obviously have our holidays. I incorporate the Jewish holidays. February is Black History Month. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. So we started off at the beginning of utilizing all of our board members to as a as a sort of a, you know, they're the guinea pigs. We're gonna use our BOD, BOA members as features for these interviews first to see what the response is. And then we want to, as we say, broaden our international work network. And so we're gonna also rolling into the next year and later this year, have some of our international members. We're gonna have a junior member. Sino is going to be our feature for Hispanic Heritage Month. And so we're just kind of <clears throat> making sure that everybody just remembers that yes, we love kidney biopsies and BAMF and, and research, but we're also people behind all of that, that you know just have our everyday struggles. And so the bonus question, there's 10, they're all the same question, 10 questions. And then the bonus question is something that the interviewee can choose to answer or not in specific to the month that we are celebrating in the, sp the specific question of about heritage or LGBTQ plus community. That was June. We did a feature for Autism Awareness Month with Dr. Haas, whose son is autistic. So we're just trying to <laughs> come away from, yes, we love kidneys, but we're all people. We have lives. We all deserve respect and appreciation. So I think that it has been pretty well received as far as I am aware. For the listeners, we'll make sure to put a link to those in the show notes. They're really wonderful. I really enjoyed yeah. reading them, which really kind of brings us to the people around this podcast. What do all of you do for fun when you're being humans who are not just renal pathologists? <laughs> I'll see no you start. <laughs> okay, so I was born and raised in the in the beach, literally, like in a very tropical, beautiful city of Natal. And being here in Chicago for over a year now, I like to pretend that Michigan Lake is my beach. <laughs> and I go there every, pretty much every weekend during summer and sometimes even during fall. I think that's my favorite thing to do outside medicine currently. I always try to, make, to bring my dog. And I think we match our personality, like going, mm -hmm. with, he also, he also loves going to the, our so-called beach, Lake mm -hmm. Michigan. Hey, I grew up in Chicago. So the Lake Michigan beach was my beach too. <laughs> I suspect that the Lake Michigan beach of today is much nicer and cleaner than the Lake Michigan beach of the late 80s. <laughs> so nice. I love in there. I, I love, yes. I love, and people say it's cold, but I don't mind. I, and I'm suspect to say that because I grew up in like warm waters, but I really like it. Oh, cool. So I'll go next. I spend a lot of my time away from work, resting and recovering from work, unfortunately. But when I do get a moment, I like to read a lot. I do like to go out and I haven't been to any of the beaches yet. Mind you, when I first moved here, it, COVID hit like the second I got here. So everything was shut down. So I need to get to the beaches, but just the lake, walking up and down the lake is always really peaceful and relaxing. I said, I read, I walk on the lake. I like the nightlife of Chicago <laughs> when I get a chance to participate in that. It's a foodie city. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Brad, our chair, just informed me that our, it's the number two, Chicago, some ranking system is the number two place in the world to live, number two most beautiful city or something like that. So there's so much to do in Chicago. And as we're coming out of, you know, COVID lockdown stuff, I'll be able to explore that a little bit more. But Sarah, if you have tips or 
things you oh, recommend. Let me I, uh, I have done so much excellent eating in Chicago. <laughs> oh, I'm there for meetings all the time. And you know, I'm such a foodie. I love the restaurants there. And I have to say, I enjoy the highbrow. I enjoy the lowbrow. I've been fortunate to eat at Alinea. And I have also been known to love the Billy Goat Tavern under Michigan Avenue. That's like my mm-hmm. spot for cheeseburgers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to ask one follow-up question. Do you have a book recommendation from your recent reading list that you can share? I just started Man's Search for Meaning by Victor Oh, Frankel. you know, I just actually just started that book too. I'm not very far into it, but somehow yeah. it came across my radar and I just started it as well. So that's an interesting yeah. coincidence. That is really funny. We'll, we'll have to have a virtual parallel, you know, right. book club and share some notes. Neat. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Neat. Oh, yeah. You guys are making me nostalgic for Chicago. <laughs> we lived there for almost 15 years. Oh, and in the end, we lived not far from hot dogs. Like, I know it's not there. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Good memories. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I've been in Vancouver now almost about seven, going on eight years. And since moving here, I have to say I have gone full Pacific Northwest. <laughs> so I've, I've learned how to fly fish. We go hiking, we go camping, both backpacking as well as car camping. We've During the pandemic and we couldn't really travel much, we, we got a camper van and we've been going all over the province to the Rockies and back. So I've really been enjoying the splendors of British Columbia and it's been fantastic. Wow, <laughs> wow. So beautiful. Oh. Yeah, if you're going to have some place to have to explore during a pandemic, I've been up there in that part of the world a couple times. And every time I'm just amazed by the scenery. Yeah, it's been pretty spectacular. (laughs) And fly fishing, that seems extremely difficult. Do you eat what you catch or is it catch and release? No, catch and release. So it's it's a little bit different. Like it's the two-handed and spay casting. So it's for bigger fish. So I've gone steelhead fishing. And I don't always catch stuff, but I have to say, I just really enjoy it because you're kind of out in the middle, just with nature and you get into a rhythm and it's really meditative and relaxing. And it's just such a nice foil to all the craziness of academia. Did you say you catch the fish with your hands? No, 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 no. Oh, oh, when you said two hand, I thought you meant... Oh, no, because they're, they're single-handed fly fishing oh, and then double-handed. Okay. So this one's double-handed. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so is it like you're in the middle of a river and like those, and then you're, is that? Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the, the rivers are a bit deeper. So that, that's why the uh, double-handed makes it so you don't have to throw your fly so far behind you. Yeah. So that yeah. it's more of a cast in front, but still like I'm solidly, because I'm not that tall, you know, <laughs> waist deep in water. <laughs> yeah, that seems fun. Yeah, wow. which, is, which is something else because at least when I've gone steelhead fishing, you know, it's been October, November. So Ooh. it gets chilly, <laughs> but it's great. Wow, that is so cool. I feel like I've learned so much about fly fishing. I didn't even realize there were two-handed and one-handed techniques. That's awesome. Vignesh? Wow. Yeah, a little bit about myself. I'm a huge soccer fan, so I play a lot of soccer. I support Chelsea, which is a team in London. If you guys are on my Twitter or follow me on Twitter, you might see me post about them occasionally. I I play for a team here. It's a nice adult league where we can play at 
at night. So it's 8.30 to 10.30. And it's a good kind of way to get away from work and exercise and be outdoors. It's nice during the pandemic because we're outdoors. So my thing to do apart from pathology is soccer. And then, uh, of course, spend time with my kids. My wife and I just had a baby boy a month ago. So we have a little baby at home. Yeah. Congratulations. You're in it. You're in it. Yeah. So, so of course, all the soccer and everything has stopped now because, you know, it's all diapers and whatever. But yeah, so soccer and spending time with my family is kind of my thing to do apart from pathology. All of you have such cool hobbies. I feel like I'm inspired to go be more sporty and outdoorsy now. (laughs) So we're almost to the end of our time here. And I wanted to just go around. One thing we love to do on PathPod is to close off. What is your best piece of advice for listeners? And that can be about pathology, about renal pathology, or just life in general. My best piece of advice for just in general, maybe even in life, is just to know what you want. You have to know what you want in order to be able to achieve it. And I think sometimes we spend a lot of time not really aware of what our goals are. So if you're not aware of what your goals are, and it could be in anything, your goal in life, your goal in academics, your goal in research, whatever, you have to really know your goal. And then it's so much easier to achieve it if you're already aware of it. And then you can make arrangements and set up things to achieve that goal instead of just spinning your wheels, just doing things because that's what you're supposed to do in medicine or that's what you're supposed to do in residency and not selecting things carefully that help you achieve your goal. So a long way to say, know what you want. Yeah, that's great. And so important to make that distinction of know what you want and not just know what what to do. Right. 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 (laughs) And following what Dr. Ellis said, I agree with her. I think that my best piece of of advice as someone who's restarting my career now is that if you feel that your pathway either in the personal life or professional life is not the one that you are supposed to if you don't feel like you are fulfilling your goal career goal or personal goal don't be afraid to restart and there's always plenty of time for us to to reset our, our career or our personal life and related to that too i would say you know along the way to also be open because a lot of things that I got involved with were things that I had never really considered. And, you know, even like being in renal, I never thought it would happen. And here I only sign out renal path. So that there's a lot of things, a lot of opportunities that can come along that you have your goal, but, you know, to be open that that goal might take shape in many different forms. Yeah. One piece of advice I can give is from echoing what everyone else has said is that there's a lot to do in pathology and it can be stressful and it can seem overwhelming. So, it, you know, sometimes it's good to just kind of take a step back and just kind of try to have something that you can do outside of work or whatever, just to kind of keep yourself okay. And, and I feel like, you know, the pathology community is small and we're close knit and we're, you know, things will fall into place. So if you're just listening and you're worried about fellowships or jobs or the job market or whatever, you know, just know that, you know, we've all gone through it and or going through it and things tend to fall into place. So don't worry, you guys are all going to be very good at what you do. Just try not to stress out too much about pathology because things like we were talking about the job market, things like that, things fall into place. So it's good to relax and and just not worry too much about, about your career. Wonderful. I think those are wonderful words to end with. And I wanted to say thank you all to all of you for coming here, for sharing your stories, for teaching me about renal pathology. (laughs) And for the listeners, I'm going to put everyone's Twitter handles in the show notes, as well as links to the Renal Path Society and some other resources for you. So thank you all for being here. And thanks to our audience for listening. 
Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you. Support for the Free Path Pod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod. Thank you.